Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxel. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxel's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxel attorney Phil McKay. Phil McKay is the chair of Holly Troxel's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, He has helped establish the patent program policies and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Hi, welcome to Attorney Time. Uh, My name is Phil McKay. I'm the chair of the department, uh, the patent department here at Holly Troxel. Um, and I'm continuing with my podcast series directed to patents in particular and touching a little bit on general IP. Um, the, the, today's discussion is going to be parts of a patent. We're going to talk about the various parts of a patent uh, that either could be your patent application that you're reviewing a draft, or it could be when you're looking around and you come across these things and you want to understand what's being set forth in that patent. Uh, this discussion is going to be very helpful with that. It's also going to be helpful in kind of understanding what the person, whether it be yourself or a patent attorney, needs to prepare this patent application and uh, the reason those particular elements are important. So beginning with that, we're going to have our usual disclaimer. Uh, This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not represent any form of legal advice or counsel. The presentation is intended for individual inventors or companies that are new to the patenting process and desire an introduction the patent law concepts. Uh, therefore, the discussion is not is a simplified, high-level discussion. It's not really uh, legal analysis or certainly not academic analysis. Um, and it, the listener needs to keep in mind that patent law issues are highly fact-dependent, and therefore the listener should seek out competent patent counsel for their specific patent questions or issues. Uh, uh, that the listener might have. Also, it's an evolving, like all forms of law, it evolves. So if you're listening to this podcast significantly later than 2021, things could have changed. Okay, with all that in mind, uh, we're going to move into these parts of a patent uh, uh, discussion. Uh, So at a highest level, there's really two parts to a patent, uh, the specification and the claims. Uh, Included in the specification is really the third part, which is figures. Uh, but really the figures in the specification are to be used together uh, to describe the invention. So let's, uh, we're going to do an overview first and then we'll jump into uh, the details. Let's start with the specification. The whole time we're talking about the various parts of the specification, the most important thing to keep in mind is that the specification, once the patent application is filed, can't be changed. You can't add to it. Um, There's some exceptions to that, but they're mostly uh, in the realm of correcting typos or, or formatting the uh, specification in a particular way that the examiner wants and, and w- you failed to do. You can't really add what's, again, importantly called new matter. So if your specification is directed to a blue widget to do X 
And later on, for whatever reason, uh, it's, it becomes apparent that there's a red widget out there that you'd really like to cover. Well, if it's not in your specification as filed, likely, var, far more likely than not, you will not be able to add that to the specification. So the takeaway there is as we get into these parts of the specification, it needs to be as complete as possible, and you want it to cover as many different ways of doing your invention as possible, and, and, and you also to cover as many applications of your invention as possible. And it'll make clearer when we get into the specification. But uh, also staying with the spec for a second, and spec being specification, of course, um, the important part there about all that is that it might come when you're examining your application, it may come uh, uh, critical to add something to the claims section, which we'll also be talking about, it. to amend it is what it's called. But you can only amend the claims based on what's in that specification. So you'll hear me uh, refer to the specification as a toolbox, because it really is. When you need to tweak these claims to get around something the examiner cited against you, that specification is your toolbox, and if the tool's not in there and described, you can't use it. Okay, so we'll get, it'll make more sense towards the end of this. And again, we have the figures that are tied in with the specification, and the whole key to the specification, in addition to it being this toolbox, is that the specification needs to describe the invention such that one of skill in the art would understand the invention and how to use it. Uh, and again, we'll get into more detail on that. The other piece is the claims. So the claims are tougher. Uh, generally, if you're reading the specification and figures, it should read something like a technical paper, uh, particularly the inventor, while reading a draft, should understand what's being uh, discussed, but so should one of skill in the art. Kind of, well, yeah, I understand that, and it might not be the best language, it may be a little bit technical, it's not going to be a fun read probably, but it should be pretty understandable. On the other hand, the claims, unless you've been, you know, walked through it with your attorney or whoever's preparing this, the claims can be much harder to read. Uh, they're, they're pretty draconian in, in many ways and uh, uh, archaic, really. Uh, and, and what it is, and the reason for that, is that the claims, remember, we're in the, the field of intellectual property, and patents is a subdivision of intellectual property. And so we're kind of trying to describe the invention the same way you would describe a lot of land, a real property situation. So if you've ever seen these, uh, you go out and get the one for your home, for instance. It's not going to say, you know, your address at 123 Elm Way. It'll have that, but that's not how they're going to describe it. It's going to say this property that belongs now to this person extends from the northwest corner at this coordinate to the southwest corner at this coordinate. And by the time you're said and done, it's going to describe a rectangle or some other shape um, that when you read it in and of itself, to the average person is going to tell them almost nothing. They want to hear it's 123 Elm Lane. But when it comes to a surveyor or determining where fences should go or where your neighbor's property starts and so forth, it's very important that it be very precise and in this format. Well, claims are the same way, except it's intellectual property and a patent. But the reason the claims read the way they do is it's describing your invention in a way that makes it clear where your invention and this property right begins and where it ends but it makes it harder to read, as we'll talk about in a little bit. And again, I can't stress this enough, the specification and the claims work together intricately and importantly to define the claims. If there's a term in the claims where there's a question, what does that mean? The specification should make that clear what it means. 
And in addition, the specification and what's in the specification can be used to change the claims when you're arguing this patent with the examiner. So we're going to start with the specification. And the specification itself is broken into several components, some of which are required by the law, some of them are not. Uh, so the first, if you're looking through a, I guess what I'll call a typical patent, the first section you're going to hit, there might be some business at the top related to uh, 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 related applications and related patents and so forth, but the first substantive piece you're going to hit likely is the background section, or it could be entitled the field of the invention. Um, the background section or field of the invention section is not required. So this is an optional part, although the majority of them these days have a background section. Um, there was a time, not too long ago, a decade or so ago, where the background section had sort of fallen from favor and people left it out on purpose. And I'll explain that in a minute. To me, I personally believe that's a mistake. I've never written an application that did not have a background section. The reason for that is the background section is where you can set the stage. The background section is where you go in and you talk about what a horrible place the world is without your invention. You discuss the problem that you're addressing with your invention and why it's a real problem. And to my mind at least, it's probably the most kind of uh, typically creative and sort of salesman part of the application. Um, you know, you really are painting the world as being a horrible place without the invention. Uh, and, and whoa, whoa, it's just woe is me because we can't solve this problem and nobody has. Um, the reason the background section fell from favor, and, and you have to be careful with the background section, is that in the course of describing the problem, you might be tempted to describe parts of your actual invention. And in some cases, it's absolutely required. You know, your invention might involve elements A, B, and C, and A and B are well known. It's your addition of C that's, that's really uh, novel and, and what you're trying to patent. And it, you might be tempted to put that in the background. And in some cases, you might have to, although I'll talk to you about that in a minute. Um, that's to be avoided. And here's the reason. If you put it in a section called background and you talk about pieces of your actual invention, it's highly likely the examiner will then, when they're examining the invention, will say, well, applicant claims elements A, B, and C. Well, I'm not even going to talk about element A because element A was admitted by the applicant in the background section to be prior art, to have already existed when the patentee filed this application. So the background section, those are called admissions, prior art admissions. They're to be avoided. So when you're, going, when you're talking about uh, your background section and you're discussing the problems, you really should stay away from your invention as completely as you can and just talk about the problem. The world's a horrible place because we don't have this and because we don't have this, lots of time and energy and expense are wasted. Uh, again, the world's a horrible place, but don't really go into your invention at that point and avoid that discussion as much as possible in the background section. Well, sometimes that can be hard to do, and for a while there, uh, people were saying, geez, don't put in a background. There's nothing to be gained, and you, you're going to make these possible admissions. Um, I disagree. I think the background section, these examiners are human. The readers of these applications are human. Uh, it's only natural that they want to hear a good story, and uh, we're going to tell that good story, and we're going to start with the background section and talk about, again, how much your invention is needed without talking about your invention itself. 
in that instance where you might have to talk about, for instance, again, your invention involves elements A, B, and C, and there's really no avoiding talking about A and B uh, to point out how great C is, um, don't put that in the background. I would move that into the detailed description because the background section is a sort of this banner that says, hey, what's in this section is what's already been done and already known. So if you really need to talk about A, B, and C and they are part of your invention, bring them down into the detailed description, which I'll be speaking about here in a little bit. Okay, so after the background section, not required again, is a summary. Okay, a summary is not required, uh, but it's an excellent opportunity to get, again, that almost literary flow where we start with a background section that describes the world as a woeful place without your invention. And then we, lo and behold, we come writing in and we have the solution. And the summary should be a nice segue from the world is really a horrible place without, well, just a horrible place because this, this uh, solution is lacking. And then in the summary we say, hey, guess what? We have a solution. We're the heroes. So that's one very important purpose of a summary is it keeps that sort of storytelling literary flow of the patent application. But there's other uses of the summary and there's other variations of the summary that are important. Again, summary is not required. One thing you will see, particularly in older patent applications, but I still see it a lot today, is that people will uh, take a claim, which we'll get to the claims section. And like I said, the claims do not read particularly well often. But they'll take the claims and to support those claims, they will make sure they're supported by taking the claim, bringing it into this summary section, and then turning this archaic description form that claims can often be and, and basically paraphrasing it into what we would call common English. Uh, so you'll often see a summary that is really just a restatement of the broadest claim in English, if you will. Um, and that's perfectly legitimate and probably should be somewhere in the application. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the summary, but it should be somewhere to make sure you have support for this broadest claim. But there's another purpose of the summary, and this is, you know, anticipating. By the way, the, before I say this, let me tell you that patent litigation is extremely rare. But anticipating even uh, licensing arguments and certainly litigation, we'll assume, you know, that this application is going to be presented and discussed with a jury or a judge who one may or may not and likely may not have the technical expertise to completely understand the invention and may or may not even understand patent law. So we will take this summary and use it what's called a jury summary. We will describe the invention in really plain English without a lot of detail again at a 20,000 foot level and say this invention is directed to this great solution in a way that grabbing almost a person off of the street would read this, because that's what your jury's going to be, right? Would read this and uh, say, oh, that's what this invention is. So that's a very important purpose of the summary in addition to the tie-in with the background. And while we're there, uh, and then this, this claim summary could be there, if it doesn't read well, move it. But uh, we want that jury summary in there for sure. And then there's another uh, type of summary that may be, may be more a reflection of my style. And by the way, patent applications are written in, uh, if there's 10 patent attorneys, there'll be 20 different styles. But uh, I also, something I refer to as a detailed summary, uh, which is sort of a jumbo shrimp thing. But in the detailed summary, when you, when you go through the detailed description, which is where a section we'll talk about here in a minute, 
Um, you're describing the invention in detail, usually with reference to particular figures or drawings. And uh, that can be problematic or at least can open the door to arguments in litigation that, well, clearly, you know, the applicant only envisioned the invention as it's set forth in these figures. And that's probably, there's probably boilerplate in there to prevent that from actually being said with any, in any colorable way, but it can be effective to a jury that doesn't understand patent law. So to avoid that, we can basically take uh, a, a shorter version of the detailed description and describe the invention in some detail, probably at an enabling level, you know, so somebody with skill in the art will understand it. Um, in, a, in this detailed summary without referring to figures and without referring to necessarily particular embodiments. Then we have this kind of broad coverage at this second level, this detailed summary level um, that isn't referencing a particular figure and it's hard for litigators uh, to argue that we're limiting ourselves to the invention as shown in the figures. Uh, this is a second level of description um, and again no, certainly not required. This is stylistic really. So again, summary not required, should tie in with the background so you have this nice segue showing that you're the hero that's saving the day. Uh, claim summary, if it works, uh, claim summary should be somewhere but it doesn't necessarily have to be in the summary section. And then a jury summary, we do want to describe this at a very high level so that uh, picture those opening arguments in court uh, that the litigator can point to and say, hey, this is the invention. All right, so we've gotten past the background and the summary, neither of which was required. Now we get to the detailed description. Detailed description is required. Okay, and the key to the detailed description at its highest level is that it must describe the invention in enough detail that one of skill in the art will understand the invention and how to make or employ it. Okay, some key, there's a lot going on there uh, from a legal point of view. First of all, uh, one of skill in the art, that's uh, got a lot of possibilities. And it varies very much depending on the subject matter of the patent application. In some cases, one of skill in the art might be a PhD. If this patent is directed to some form of nuclear physics, there's a very good chance that the one of skill in the art will be required to have a PhD just to understand the subject matter that's being discussed. Um, the important point here is you don't need to recreate the wheel. In other words, when you're writing this at patent application, you don't need to assume this is a person that's just pulled off of the street um, and you don't have to go into you know, the atomic nature of matter and so forth and work your way finally up to the invention. You can assume that one of skill in the art is a PhD. The other thing that's important about the detailed description is that there may be a bunch of different ways of doing your invention. And, uh, and you may be tempted to try and cover them all. Uh, you don't necessarily have to. Now, keep in mind, we want to keep this broad, and we want to have as many embodiments described as possible, but uh, you really just have to describe one embodiment in order to qualify uh, under the detailed description requirements. You need to enable one of skill in the art to understand one way of doing it. An important side note is it used to be that you had, if there was a best way of doing it, you had to make sure that best way or best mode was in the detailed description. That is no longer true and that never was a very good standard. The best way of doing something is going to be first of all very subjective and secondly uh, it will vary as time goes on. There may be better ways of doing this that are found. So this best mode is no longer required but you do need to explain how to do it at least one way. 
Here's some interesting things that some people find surprising. What you don't need to do is explain why your invention works. You don't necessarily need to understand the science or whatever's going on behind the scenes that may, causes your invention to be, well, new. Um, it's, uh, that's surprising to most people. It could be that the scientific concepts are beyond the actual inventor's understanding. All the inventor knows is that if you do X, Y, and Z, it does this quite well and, uh, and needs to know the result and how we get that result, not why we get that result. The other thing that's uh, a misnomer that's out there is everybody thinks in terms of patents as being a, you'll hear the term, a better mousetrap. That's actually not the standard. The standard is a new mousetrap. Again, better is very subjective. It's going to vary from application to application. It's going to vary from time to time. So a new mousetrap is all that's required, not better. And uh, again, the specification is, works very closely with the figures typically uh, to describe the invention at the level that's required by the law. I'm going to hit this again because it's so important. The specification and the detailed description, once filed, you can't add new variations and new matter to it. So you're stuck with what you're filed with in that specification. And as I pointed out earlier, this is a toolbox that can be used to change the claims. If it's not in the specification, you don't have the legal term support for the change to the claims, and you can't do it. If indeed, after filing, some new revelation comes to you about your application that nobody anticipates, you're going to have to file that in what's called a continuation in part. And that is actually a new application. The continuation in part is going to build on the original application. All the stuff that comes from the original application, all that uh, text and so forth, gets the filing date of the original application, but the new matter, the new edition, gets the new filing date, the later filing date. I guess the good news there is that if both the CIP and the parent application issue, those are indeed two separate applications, and the CIP would typically expire later than the parent although not necessarily. Okay, so that's the detailed uh, description. Then, you know, connected with that, as I've already uh, explained, is the figures. The figures are, here. the terminology is they're required if needed. My response to that is they're always needed. You should always have at least one figure. If you file an application without a figure, you're starting off on the wrong foot with the examiner, and you're probably not really describing your invention in enough detail. Um, so, again, the figures and the detailed description must describe the invention in enough detail that one of skill in the art will understand the invention and how to make it and use it. Um, in some cases, particularly in software, the figures are really a roadmap. They, they, you, know, you might start with a, uh, a series of steps or a flowchart, and, and then each block in that flowchart gets its own flowchart to go on like that. But the roadmap for the entire detailed description part of the specification is the figures. In other, uh, in other examples, the figures simply show different ways of doing it um, and are what describe particular what in, in the art is called embodiments or ways of doing the invention, like I said. Um, and oftentimes, it's really a hybrid. You know, the, Some of the figures will be the backbone of, it, of explaining the invention or the map, I should say, and uh, in other cases, it'll, the figures will also show specific examples. Okay, the other uh, part of the, what I consider part of the specification is the abstract. Um, the abstract is this very short paragraph at the end of a patent, typically, well, it is at the end of a patent, um, is required, by the way. Um, it's basically a search tool. It, it's a very high level uh, uh, 
explanation of the invention or discussion of the invention, you're limited to 140 words or less, so this is no detailed description of the invention. There should be no claim language in it. Those of practitioners in the art know you, you, want, you don't want to see terms in there consisting uh, of or uh, comprising. Uh, it really should be very much plain language. Um, economy of words, because we only have 140 words, I guess people coming out of a, uh, a tweet environment would be happy with that. Um, but 140 words, and again, it's a search tool. Um, when it comes to actually examining the application or in litigation, not a lot of weight is typically given to the abstract. However, you still don't want to put any admissions in there or put any unnecessary limitations in there that a litigator can point to to try and limit the scope of your invention later on. So now we're, that's basically the specification, and then the last part is the claims. So uh, patent practitioners will often tell each other, oh, the claims are the key. Um, they're important, and, and certainly once the patent issues, they are the key, although the claims are interpreted. If there's a term in the claim where they say, what does that mean? They're going to go to the specification to, uh, uh, to determine that interpretation. Uh, but I still would argue, particularly at the application stage, uh, a lot of energy should be put into that specification because whatever you file, you know, when you file the claims, whatever's there, the claims can be changed, as I've noted, but they can only be changed based on what's in the specification. So I think the specification, uh, in, at least in terms of prosecution, is by far the most important part. Uh, claims can be amended if you have a good spec. Spec can't be amended no matter how good your claims are. Um, so uh, again, they're hard to read. I discussed a little bit how it's it's basis of this uh, you know, draconian format is is that we're really trying to describe property the way they would describe real property. Um, one of the things you'll notice in claims is uh, there's only one period allowed. Uh, these things can go on for half a page, even a page sometimes. With only one period, that makes for one nasty sentence. The way we get around that is some creative punctuation. You'll see a lot of colons and semicolons and commas. And um, there it is. Uh, very legalistic. Um, not easy to read, but they should be understandable, particularly once your patent attorney has walked you through them. Um, and again, the claims actually also are, in terms of um, subject matter and, and new matter versus old matter, the claims are considered part of the specification in terms of what's what's allowable in this uh, application. So for instance, um, something, an embodiment that's captured in the claims but isn't discussed in the spec, the specification I should say, um, that, that can still be used to show that your patent did consider uh, that particular embodiment. Uh, but again, the specification should be viewed as your toolbox. It should be where the discussion of different embodiments is done in some detail. Uh, the more detail, the more likely it is that that particular embodiment is going to be important. Another thing about claims that you need to know going in is there's, there's different types of claims. Uh, I'm going to talk about independent claims and dependent claims. Those are the two most common types. Um, the, an independent claim is a claim that stands on its own. So uh, if you're, again, we'll, have, we'll go with our blue widget for doing X. Claim one would like what's going to be an independent claim. And it's going to say a blue widget for doing X, or a widget, a widget for doing X. Let's go with that, a widget for doing X. Now, claim two might be an independent claim, and that, excuse me, might be a dependent claim. Claim two might be a dependent claim, and it will start off with claim one. It'll say the invention as set forth in claim one, 
and then it'll use some uh, specific term like wherein. Uh, uh, it'll say, yeah, the, cl the, the invention of claim one where the widget is blue. Claim two might be another dependent claim that says the invention of claim one where the invention is green. And then claim three might be another dependent claim that says the invention of claim two where, well, we've already established it's green because we're in claim two, and where it, it does Y. The point is you have this base claim of the basic idea, and that is your independent claim. And then the dependent claims add new limitations or restrictions. Um, this is really used most effectively in sort of a defense in depth structure. Uh, and you, pardon me, I, was, I sort of grew up in the Navy, so I sort of think in these terms. Uh, your, your independent claims going to be the broadest, most generalized version of your invention that you think doesn't read on what's already out there. And so think of that as your, either your picket ships or your uh, forward operating base, what have you. This is where you're trying to keep territory and claim territory, but you know you're pretty far out there. Uh, and then what you have is a series of fallback positions. So these are your dependent claims. Say, so okay, I claimed a widget in one, in dependent claim two, I'm claiming a green widget. In dependent claim three, I'm claiming a green widget that does X. You're getting narrow and narrower, and these are fallback positions. And in many cases, you'll have what's called a picture claim as being one of your last independent claims. And the picture claim is your Alamo. This is uh, every. This is exactly, well, not exactly, but this is uh, a lot of limitations based on what you're actually doing. And it's sort of, a, well, if all else fails, uh, perhaps the examiner will allow this other claim that has all these limitations in it. Now, you don't necessarily, if you got a good specification, you don't necessarily have to worry about that picture claim going in. Because if it's in the specification, these limitations, like green and for doing X and for doing Y, if those are in the specification and you get in a jam with the examiner where you're arguing over something the examiner's citing against you, you can go into that toolbox of the specification and pull these things out and add them while you're prosecuting instead of doing it going in in the application. Uh, claims is sort of a, almost a, a podcast in and of itself. Um, it's really where the legalistic and, and to some degree the professional art comes into play. Uh, again, you'll often hear patent attorneys say it's the most important part. Once the patent issues, um, that's a more arguable. But keep in mind that specification is really where when you're Drafting the application, most of the energy should go to make sure you have that complete toolbox when you need it. Okay, hopefully that was helpful. That, again, was parts of a patent. Uh, again, I'm Phil McKay, chair of the patent department at Holly Troxel, and this is Attorney Time. <laughs> <laughs>